Um, my name is Julie, and 59 years ago, I started my life in diapers. Hi, I'm Jill. And I'm Ashley. And this is Poverty Pitfalls and the Price of Diapers. And today we have Julie Carmichael. But first, hi, Ashley. Hi. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> good. I'm good. I'm trying to, what day is it? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, we just had, was Easter just this past weekend? No, that was two weekends ago. I yeah. Day it is. I don't know. It's rainy. It's like rainy, lots of rainy days in a row is what day it is. A never ending winter. Yeah. Hopefully by the time this airs, maybe it'll be like actually summer and not a lot of rainy days and, and more sunshine. Yeah. Um, although I will say, okay, I have a little story. We, um, my daughter and I went to Costco a few weeks ago and do you go to Costco? Are you a Costco? When I have a lot of energy, <laughs> I, I have to schedule it. <laughs> I have to be like, okay, when am I totally going to have enough? Yeah. Totally fair. Yeah. yeah. Um, I will say, I think we spent more money than we've ever spent at Costco. <laughs> it was a little obscene, but we hadn't been in a really long time. So I was kind of expecting it. You know, we had to like stock up on some of the, the just big things that you really only have to stock up on a couple times a year, mm-hmm. but they have these new, um, so like when you go watch your son's soccer games, right? You bring your little chair that you sit in. Mm -hmm. They have these new ones that are like rocking chairs, but they also lay back into almost a hammock. Oh, nice. Oh my God. So perfect for your pool. We sat, yeah, we sat and we tried it out in Costco for, I don't know, five minutes. We kept changing. And then Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, we we just have to do it. So we bought two. We bought two. I know we're going to love these. And then if we only have one, we're going to fight over it. Mm -hmm. So they had been sitting in my car for like a week and probably two weeks. And last night it was gorgeous out. Um, and I was like, okay, I'm going to get this thing out and try it out. And Riley was not home. So I got it out, set it up, had to read. It's a little, it's not just as simple as the ones that you take to the soccer game and you just open and fold. It's it's still pretty simple, but I had to read the directions for a second. Um, set it up, laid in it, and I'm just like, this is this is heaven. This is the best, <laughs> best purchase I have ever made right here. And um, Riley gets home and she does not love the outdoors because she is terrified of all bugs, um, including ladybugs and butterflies, but mm. anything flying. And we do tend to have a lot of bees out back and um but she came out and tried out the chair. And then later that night, she was like, I'm going to go sit outside in the chair and listen to some music. And I'm like, my life is changing. <laughs> We're not going to have to fight about sitting outside. Yes, that so, is great. But, um, you know, maybe these chairs or Costco could sponsor us. Because seriously, <laughs> if you go to Costco, get these chairs. Okay. I, I do need some new chairs. Mine are kind of getting dry rot stage. Oh, I always go to Costco for the gift cards. You can get oh yeah, hundred dollars yeah. because I eat at Jose Peppers yes. and Summit Grill, 
And so I'm like, well, why not go spend a hundred dollars or exactly. spend eighty dollars to get a hundred? That's a no-brainer. It is so, a no-brainer. It's yeah. a no-brainer. I love Costco. We have we get a, there's a lot of staples of food and things that we get at Costco. So we go a little too often, but um Okay. Anyway, I'm getting us totally off track. <laughs> Let's talk about our awesome guest, Julie Carmichael. Julie uh, is pretty incredible. She was the director of programs for Amethyst Place for seven years. Um, she was the owner of Public Finance Consultants for 22 years, um, working as a financial management consultant for over 30 area municipalities and nonprofits. So one thing I know about Julie is she knows her poverty. <laughs> she gets it. She understands it. Um, she understands nonprofit. She's just, she's done some great work. I know, I think you've, you've seen her presentation on the benefits cliff or at least Yes. Heard about it. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm, I'm sure we'll ask her about it today in the podcast, but she's just really a wealth of knowledge and um, on all things nonprofits. And so I'm really excited to talk to her today. And I'm certain that we're going to have her back sometime because I, I doubt we're going to get to everything today. But um, hopefully you'll get to learn a lot more right now. So welcome, Julie Carmichael. Julie, welcome. We're Thank so you. we're so excited to have you here today. Um, I don't even know where to start with you. I, I want to like dive in and talk about everything. But um, let's just first, I guess, start a little bit about your early life. Tell us, you know, who you are, where you came from, how you got to where you are today. Um, okay, so I have always lived in the Kansas City metro area. I have. Uh, three siblings. And for the most part of my growing up, uh, my mom raised us as a single mom. Um, she's, she's very much a force of nature. If you ever meet her, you will know what I mean. <laughs> and she worked three jobs to get us everything that we needed. And um, she, we're, as a family, we're just completely devoted to her because of all the sacrifices that she made for us. The interesting thing about my mom that I always try to emulate as best I can is all of us firmly believe we are her favorite. <laughs> In fact, we all have t-shirts that say mom likes me best. <laughs> that is hilarious. <laughs> she, and it's genuine. And she's like that with her grandkids. And she's like that with her great grandkids. When, you know, you call my mom, she's just so happy to hear from you. So excited to hear from you. So I really try to be that kind of, of person and, and emulate her as much as I can. That's so cool. That's really okay, hard I to pull off. <laughs> yeah and I I have to ask because um you know being a single mom you said you're 59 that was I mean yeah there were a lot of single moms back then but I'm guessing there were not as many resources as there might be today I, in my school moms. I was one of maybe two kids whose parents were divorced wow. I mean that just wasn't a thing mm -hmm. um there weren't the mental health supports 
back then that I'm convinced my father desperately needed. Mm-hmm. Um, domestic violence, not even a, a topic of conversation at that point. No place to go, no resources to access. And um, truly, just as far as any kind of assistance, my mom was a, a sing, an only child herself. So, mm-hmm. you know, she, I'm sure there were times she felt alone on an island big time. Yeah. How did she not lose her sanity? I would like to know, because yeah. I have one child 90% of the time, you know, as a single parent, and it's, it's not easy. <laughs> It's not, and you know, I think mom just made the decision a long time ago that uh, no matter what, um, she was never going to feel sorry for herself. She never let any of us go down that road, even a little bit. Um, She always approached things, still does, with a lot of joy. And, you know, I didn't, I was very rarely aware of how poor we really were. I mean, I knew it because, you know, I was working at Dunkin' Donuts and giving my money to mom for whatever. So I knew that we didn't have a lot of money, but I never felt poor because she just made everything always feel safe. And in some respects, just fun. We had, we moved into a house in 1979, which that summer, had the the most hundred plus degree days oh. of any. It was like a record setting, and it was a house without air conditioning. We didn't even have fans. Oh. So I remember opening up all the windows downstairs, buying a box fan, and everybody was sleeping downstairs, and thinking it was a big, you know, kind of fun slumber party, really. <laughs> Because, you know, my mom was always like, okay, well, this is what it is. And we just, we're going to figure this one out. And, and we always did. So. Wow. And you have two siblings? I have three. I have three. Oh, wow. Yes. My brother is the youngest. He grew up with three older sisters. He, he will tell you, he wears his little red badge of courage (laughs) when he was, you know, eight, nine, 10, 11, his three sisters were all teenagers. And so, yes. And then he proceeded to get married and have two daughters. So, (laughs) well, at least he was prepared. (laughs) He he is a wonderful, wonderful husband and and father of girls for sure. So, (laughs) And then I have an older sister and a younger sister. Okay. Um, And are they all still in Kansas City? We are all still in Kansas City. All of the grandkids are in Kansas City. All of the great grandkids are in Kansas City. That's good. And I I guess I would have expected that hearing about, you know, the childhood. And so it's nice to hear that you did stay close. And it sounds like your mom created an environment for it to be that way. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm going to derail off of our actual questions a little bit. I, cause I, I don't know that I know this story. How did you get into the work that you got into? So um, I had a, a kind of major medical event in 2007 and it lasted a long time. And I just felt that all of the attention was, you know, inward, inward, inward. And I just, when it was, when I was safe and out of that, I had, you know, preteen, teen kid, two kids. And I, I just needed to get out of myself 
and focus on something else. So I had read a long time ago about Operation Breakthrough, Sister Berta and Sister Carita, and um, told the kids, okay, it's summertime, the three of us are gonna go volunteer. So every Thursday afternoon, we would go down to Operation Breakthrough. We got, we came to be known as the little family. The little family's here. Um, and we would just do whatever, um, you know, whatever we needed to do. We built desks, we held babies, right? My son's really big and strong. He was always tapped to move stuff. And one day Sister Berta was asking somebody, can you make a graph of such and such? And that person started to laugh and said, no. And I said, oh, well, Sister Bird, I can, I can do graphs. They, they didn't know what my educational background was. And I said, but yeah, I can do that. So it really became from that point forward then, when Sister Berta was doing advocacy work around childcare assistance, I became you know, kind of a, a partner in that and, and taking her, her vision and, and what she wanted to say and you know, making graphs and charts and stuff. You know, I, you've seen my graphs and charts. I have, and they're amazing. <laughs> and we're gonna talk more about those graphs and charts. Um, so what was your, was your education? What was your education? I'm, I'm guessing so it had- I, have, I went to Syracuse University and I got a master's degree in public administration. Okay with an emphasis in public finance. So what I had done up until that point, and for several years after, I had my own consulting business and worked for cities. And um, some some school districts and some nonprofits, but mostly cities. And um, so I had a little experience in that, you know, policy side, but that was really my my first, experience, deep experience, deep dive into the nonprofit world was at Operation Breakthrough. Wow. I think it was meant to be. Um, so we're, we're going to come back to some of those charts and graphs, but um, I guess when and how did you learn about poverty? So I read a, a book called Where Do We Go From Here? Um, Chaos or Community by Martin Luther King. It was his final book that he, he wrote. Um, it's just astounding. I, if you look at my copy, it has little post-it notes in 50,000 billion places. It's, it's astounding in that he was describing the situation, you know, in, 19, in the 1960s. And you read it now, because I, I take it out every once in a while and read it, um, just because I think his messages are so relevant, profound. Not much has changed. And you know, the the what he wanted to do next was really go from the civil rights movement to what he was calling and has recently become resurrected, the poor people's campaign. And he really had started to focus that, you know, poverty is is just this issue that is as important to address and resolve and to erase as the civil rights movement was. So this is his book going through the types of things that we need to do regarding education and housing and crime and all the stuff that he could have been writing right now. 
just frustrating because, you know, I know from looking at statistics, 50 decades of families living in poverty, nothing has changed. Everything we've tried to do to fix it hasn't worked. And, you know, I, I feel in a lot of respects now that I have worked with families, you know, who are, who are struggling in these situations, it's not working because we keep applying the same idea that somehow being poor is your fault. And so not being poor means you have to do something different. So let us give you all these things you have to do. And we're just not moving, we're not moving the needle. But that Martin Luther King's book really was the first time where I was like, oh, wow. And then of course, getting involved with Operation Breakthrough and those families and those kids, you, you learn really quick. Um, my son, after the very first time we volunteered there, we're driving home and he said, mom, did you bring us here so that we would, we would be thankful for what we have? <laughs> I said, yes. <laughs> Good job, Ryan. <laughs> because you do, you just, when you start connecting to different zip codes and seeing faces and seeing people, it's just a totally different thing than reading about that on a piece of paper, right? You see these families and you see their struggles and you think, yeah, I need to, I need to be a part of that. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I can't, you know, knowing you a little bit, it kind of just makes me wonder how, how do you, how, this is going to sound so bad. How do you make it through a day, Julie? Because I think that, that you have seen so much data and you have seen so many people you know, who are living in a life of poverty and it's not working. The system is broken. Right. But, um, and I think that, you know, you have a presentation, the benefits cliff, which I do want to talk about a little bit. Um, but I, I just, how do you not want to just scream at every single person, wake up, this isn't working. We got to change it. <laughs> You know, like, um, I mean, I guess some of that's your, your, the attitude, you know, your mom brought you up with, right. You can't yeah. feel sorry for yourself and you got to just keep pushing. But I think it can be so disheartening, especially when you are looking at the hard data and the facts. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is. But again, I think it's important to, to always step back from that as well and, and do that one-on-one -on -one connection. Right. So Yes, I'm over here looking at data and, and, you know, creating charts and graphs, but I'm also, you know, boots on the ground, side by side, witnessing a family, um, you know, being a part of that life and seeing those rays of hope that um, are just so important. Honestly, my experience with families who have, who are enduring some, some of the most horrific circumstances they are 100% most of the, the most grateful people I have ever worked with. And I'm always amazed by that. It just humbles me because I think, wow, if anybody should be mad or angry at your circumstances, um, it should be you. 
but that's not the case. And you probably experienced that at Happy Bottoms. You know, you've got a mom coming to get diapers for her child, which for me, if I hadn't been able to provide diapers for my babies would have been just a horrible experience, but they, they're so grateful, right? And, and that's it over and over and over again. And it's, it's just astounding to me that, that, that when you look at these people, you just, you have to keep going. You just, you can't stop. You have to keep going. One, I think there's a quote that says, once you've seen, um, oh, it's poverty or something, you know, you just, you can't turn away. You can't look back once you've actually seen it. And that's kind of what I feel my experience is now. I can't, I can't stop. Mm-hmm. I don't scream very much though, because that's kind of not my personality. Right, right. <laughs> oh yeah, I get that. I get that. Do you, do you think that we will ever see big change? Do you think there is, you know, we had Jim McDonald on from the United Way, who I think you know, um, and he talked a lot about the success of when they just put money in people's pockets um, recently and how that really made a difference Mm -hmm. um, in a way that it has not made a difference in years and years. And I guess, do you see, or do you have thoughts on, you know, what can be done that would really make a change? So David Brooks is a columnist with New York Times. I don't know if you ever read his columns or listen to him on, sometimes he's a guest on NPR. He's conservative, very conservative. And I don't always, often line up with his views but he did a he did a column where he reviewed all these different ways of helping poor people and his conclusion was literally at the end of his article he said the way to help somebody not be poor is give them money then they won't be poor I mean that was he was just like what are we doing this you know these people are poor and it was a great social experiment during the pandemic when we did put money in the hands of people to see see it did lift these people out of poverty and they they were able to buy food and they you know we didn't have this big fear of you know making people dependent make or making people lazy or whatever that's just a myth that needs to go away i'm hopeful since we have had this social experiment and we do have the the um rising again of the poor people's campaign they're doing a march on washington in june i think um that we're going to start having discussions around this again. Plus, it's become one of those things where not only have we not improved it, we've made it much, much worse. So the woman who wrote the book, um, Education, talks about how poor she was growing up and, and you know, but she recently wrote an article saying, it was so much easier on me back when I was doing this than what people are facing now. I mean, people are graduating with just mounds of student debt and not getting the education that they need and stuff. And so she she put out an article saying, don't put me out there as, as an example of what works because I grew up in a totally different era. Even though it was abject poverty, there were just opportunities for her that don't exist now. So the more we go to that extreme, 
the more we just can't, we can't keep ignoring it. And I feel like we're kind of on that cusp right now where it's becoming really hard to just push that aside and not, not notice that it's too extreme. Well, and especially, you know, the East coast or yeah, the West coast cities, East coast cities who are seeing the um, homelessness or houselessness is just, yeah, you can't, we cannot ignore it any, any longer. Um, can you tell everybody, I know it's kind of a, well, I don't know. Can you, can you tell everybody a little bit about the benefits cliff? Sure. So I was working with some single moms and, um, putting them into jobs. And I had a little form that I started with them to let them know, okay, so you're going to go to work and you're going to make this much money, but be sure to budget because your food stamps are going to go down. And if you're getting, you know, this kind of assistance, this is going to go away. So don't run out and spend all that money. Know that it's going to impact your benefits. Well, as I started doing that more and more, I started uncovering what I believe to be completely unintentional built-in perversions that really incentivize people to work less um, and it became this weird dynamic where I had to figure out how many hours and at what hourly rate it was safe to put her at in so that she wouldn't lose childcare assistance and she you know, wouldn't be decimated and kind of hold her harmless basically. So it became this weird game. And the very first woman I worked with had found a job 35 hours a week an hour, so excited, more money than she'd ever seen. She had two kids, brand new baby, both preschool. Job started at 6.30 in the morning and daycare didn't open until 7.30. So she came in, she was all excited. Julie, I'm gonna pay a friend, you know, $4 a day to take the kids in the morning for me and drop them off at daycare. And then I'm gonna go to this job and pick them up. And, you know, aside from the fact that as a single mom, that just all sounds like kind of a nightmare. And she's she was also new, newly in recovery with a brand new baby and a toddler. I said, all right, well, let's do the numbers. So what ended up happening was because she was going to go over this threshold of eligibility, it was actually going to be better for her not to work at all than to work 35 hours a week. And what happens a lot of times is people go to those jobs not knowing that. And then, they, then they're like, oh, no, I just lost childcare. Oh, no, I can't afford to buy food. And it, it becomes this thing of then our response to that is, well, maybe you don't know how to budget. Let's teach you how to budget. And, and it's not about budgeting. It's just about what, as a society, we have decided to to make it so difficult for people to be treated, which is what I call basic human dignity, right? I mean, basic human dignity is everybody deserves food. Everybody deserves uh, safe housing. A long time ago as a country, we decided everybody deserved free education. You know, now we need to start talking about these other things that just as a human being, we should feel like people have that basic right to. So 
Becky cried because she wanted to work. She wanted to go back to work. And when I worked with, with mom after mom after mom after mom, and I would ask them, so tell me what your educational goals are. What are your um, professional goals? What are your family goals? Without exception, every single one said, I want to get off public benefits. If you know anything about public benefits, it is a horrific system to be on. It's demeaning, it's demoralizing, it's overly complicated. Um, nobody sits there and says, yeah, I want to do that. And mo these moms, without exception, wanted to work and their goal was to get off public benefits. And I had to constantly tell them, you know what? It's, it's not gonna work for you. Right, that's not <laughs> actually your best option. <laughs> it's awful. As you know, Julie, we um, had an experience with that at Happy Bottoms. We had an employee with um, twins who were in childcare who started working for Happy Bottoms. Um, and because of the job and also because she lived with her mother who helped take care of the twins, her mother who also had a job, she became ineligible for subsidized childcare and for other government programs. Um, twins, I mean, daycare is expensive in the first place. And now right. you're gonna say twins, you know, one of the options was for, for her to move out on her own. Well, as a single mom of twins, I think you need that support and that help. <laughs> Of, you know, having another human living in the house. So it was just really devastating. And I remember having conversations with you. I called Operation Breakthrough. It's like, what can we do for this mother? And ultimately she decided that she had to stop working. That was her best, that was her best option. Um, and it is devastating. And I, you know, ever since then, Julie, I still talk with the board and all the time. And I'm have this conversation about how do we get to where we can pay everybody a true living wage. And that's another kind of, I'm curious where you stand on that. I feel like a lot of people are saying living wage these days and it's not a living wage. Yeah, so. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a true, it's a wage that people still cannot actually live on. No, so $15 an hour is great for a single person. That is a living wage for a single person. It is, it is not even remotely a living wage for a family with two kids. Um, and the problem is, you know, I, I have a brother who owns two vet clinics. Um, there's, there's only so much that he can pay for those very basic jobs, you know, like the, the tech who is, you know, doing washing dogs and walking dogs and stuff, right? He's never going to be able to pay a true living wage. So at some point, what conversation around helping people survive has to be also around public benefits. It can't just all be on the private sector. We absolutely need to move way farther ahead on that than we have. I mean, we're stuck back in the 1970s for the most part, as far as the value of our minimum wage. But I get, I get frustrated because these conversations happen in silos. We don't talk about the fact that if we give this mom $15 an hour, she no longer is eligible 
for childcare assistance in the state of Missouri. But at that level of which she is eligible, there's no way she could afford it. Nobody could. So it's this catch 22 of we're, you know, people think that if with poor people, we need to cut back on public benefits. We need to reduce, reduce, reduce. It's actually the opposite. We need to increase eligibility. It needs to be a partnership between public benefits, public support, and the private sector. Mm-hmm. And those two conversations can't happen by themselves. Mm-hmm. I'm going to get myself in sticky water here, and I might cut this out. <laughs> <laughs> so should all these nonprofits who are advocating for their mission and their specific thing and, you know, going on their own little tracks seems to me like it would be real smart for all of us to get together and have that conversation that, you know, it's not about what each one of us necessarily are doing individually, but it is about how do we, how do we close that gap that you like the benefits gap? How do we close that gap is, you know, is there's gotta be ways to do it, whether it's putting people's, you know, I mean, and maybe it is as simple as looking at that gap for each individual and the public policy is filling the pockets with money to close that gap. Mm -hmm. But then you don't need all these services and that's going to put a whole lot of people out of business, but that's, But that's what I want to do anyway. So, (laughs) yeah, I mean, theoretically, all nonprofits should have as their goal to put themselves out of business, right? That's theoretically, that should be their ultimate goal. Um, You know, we've gotten to this place so that nonprofit sector is as important as the private sector and is as important as the government sector. Those three legs of the stool Mm -hmm. are always going to exist and complement each other. What's happened though, if you look, the nonprofit sector is filling in all those gaps because public benefits aren't aren't budging, um, wages aren't budging, but the need is still growing. So now the public sector or the nonprofit sector is a really significant sector. And we've gotten used to that. You know, I don't know. 30 years ago, if there was this story out there that thousands and thousands of babies couldn't get diapers, there should there would have been kind of immense outrage about that. Well, that's not right. That's not right. But now, you know, we're used to organizations like Happy Bottoms filling that need without stopping to say, wait a minute, why is this need here at all? They're babies, for goodness sakes. Can we not all agree that every baby deserves a clean diaper? If we can't even agree on that, (laughs) the conversation around lifting people out of poverty is going to go nowhere. And I think that's part of the problem is that we don't, we haven't all sat down together, the nonprofits, the private sector, the government, and decided what is our true goal? If our goal is just to have people kind of subsist in, you know, barely tolerable conditions, generation after generation after generation, we got it. We, I mean, we're there. We've, we've, we've accomplished that. But if our goal is to truly lift people out of poverty, then we have to have some way different conversations about what we're doing. 
And it's going to take all three. There's all just, three. you can't, you can't eliminate the need for, you know, those emergency situations that are going to always occur. Yeah, I know you don't have a crystal ball, but do you think it will take something like the nonprofits banding together and saying enough is enough? We have to, you know, we have to do make a bigger change and bringing those people all together. Like, I, I just don't know who else would bring those people together other than nonprofits. Yeah. Um, and, you know, funders of nonprofits, right? Yes. So it, because it can't be, it can't be your clients. Nobody's going to listen to your clients. Right. You, you know, you can't, Ashley can go, you know, and testify to Jeff City and maybe bring, you know, a mom or, or a baby with her. But Sister Berta was, literally told by the legislature one year, quit bringing the moms. They didn't want to see him. They didn't want to meet him. They don't have a voice. But there are people out there who can do that. And because the nonprofit sector is a significant sector now, and you interface so much with powerful funders who should also, you know, truly have a, a reason to be interested in this then yeah, I think that would be a good, a good start is to say the private se or the nonprofit sector is going to come together for this. Yeah. I mean, for me, as a lay person, just looking at this, you know, from somebody perspective who isn't in this world all the time, you just think about there are, there's like what, 330 million people roughly or more in the United States we're throwing, we are throwing billions of dollars at these different problems, whether it be government resources, nonprofit, you know, funders, where our country is in major, major debt, not necessarily attributed to just social programs, but it, I feel like it's just should not be this complicated. <laughs> like there are resources being thrown at this. So we're just not something is, is amiss here. So if we, I mean, if we just, eliminated the bureaucracy and like the administration of all of this and just doled out the money is that I mean it's a simple thing but I mean, we're spending that, the money that's actually what uh, several nations have done different countries have done as experiments and they have found it works really really well but that is so counterintuitive to kind of the American um, mentality of pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you know, so again, if you, if you blame poor people for being poor, that gets everybody else off the hook. But if you recognize that, you know, we haven't, we have, we are putting so many roadblocks in their way of getting out of poverty and the simplest answer, just like David Brooks said is the best way to make Poor people, not poor, is given money. But people don't want to do that. You know, they want people to have to jump through hoops, prove that they deserve these most basic needs. You know, you have to work or you have to do this or you have to be looking for a job or whatever. And we're talking about food and housing and, and diapers. So it's it's gotta, it's gonna take a, a shift in how we think about approaching poverty, getting away from making a list of all the things the poor people need to do and making a list of all the things that we need to do to get out of the way so that they can truly lift themselves out of poverty. 
Well, and you said, you know, pull themselves up by the bootstraps mentality. Um, it just made me think, you know, maybe they don't have bootstraps, so we need to give them the cash. And then once they have the bootstraps, they can pull themselves up out of, you know, like you got to have the boot first. And then once right. you have the boot, then they can, then they can pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Um, we could talk about this all day. <laughs> so, um, but I'm, I'm going to move on to our next question. Julie, we're all leaders in some way. Can you tell me how you are a leader and if there was a defining point or person that led to that? Um, so yeah, um, I, I'll, I'll say, I'll say this first. I'm, I'm a very collaborative person in my work. Um, my best work has always been when I'm collaborating. So I'm not comfortable being in a leadership role. That's just not my, that's not my style. Um, but, you know, Sister Berta did inspire me to start a mentoring program called Encompass. And, you know, I, I built that program and it ended up being, you know, a, a pretty significant group. And, but again, I really felt like even though there were mentors and, and single moms and, and I was facilitating all of that, it was very much a collaboration. You know, it was, it was always, what do we do next? Kind of that, where do we go from here thing like Martin Luther King. So I tend to have more the attitude of when, when I would interface with a single mom and, you know, she, I, I would always say, so what do you need? What do you need? How can I help? <clears throat> Coming at it more from an aspect of <clears throat> how can I serve as opposed to how can I help? If that makes sense, you know, because I feel so strongly in the fundamental <clears throat> innate digni human dignity of every single person. And so I never wanted to come across like, hey, I know this better than you or whatever. I always am very much like, wow, I got a lot to learn. <laughs> I have a lot to learn. You have a lot to teach me because they do. I mean, they, they, I have learned so much working with this population that I'm incredibly grateful for. <clears throat> and it's made me a, a much better person. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think it is amazing. I've noticed how you can take that information from what you've learned on the emotional side, the human side, the connection side, and you can turn it into graphs and data and statistics that are so educational and so needed for so many people in the community for the work that we do. Um, which, you know, that that's something that not a lot of people can do and is, is incredible. So thanks for your work on that as well. And, and everything you do for our communities. I know it's a lot. Um, why do you think some of us end up in a pile of it and some of us get out clean? <laughs> <laughs> so hmm, all right well kind of keen off of our prior discussion um it really comes down to what i like to call scaffolding so you know the the single moms who were able to kind of move forward once we removed barriers in her way also had some pr pretty decent scaffolding, whatever that would be, 
So in my instant, in my case, my scaffolding was my mom and the, the strength of my family <laughs> and the firm belief that, you know, all of her kids were going to college, period. Didn't matter what it was going to take, that was going to happen. So when, when bad things happen, you know, and something causes me to take a step down or whatever, I have the resiliency and the scaffolding to get back at it. And I think that's what people generally forget is that, you know, somebody will say, well, I was poor and I've been poor before and stuff, but it's, it's not the same thing as being poor and having literally no resiliency, no backup plan, you know, nothing there to help you move forward, if that makes sense. It does. So what do you most value? My family. I'm very lucky. And I know that I just, I, I'm so lucky to have the, the siblings I have, the husband, the kids I have. I mean, I'm just, I'm lucky. That's amazing. That's incredible. Ashley, what do you have any questions to add today? I don't think I have any questions. Like you said, I think if we could talk about that one topic all day long. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, you know, I hope that because honestly, I feel like it would be cheaper for us as a nation to do it the other way. And we, yes. I feel like we need to conserve some of our resources at this point. That is something that does worry me. So, um, Thank you for all the work that you do, Julie, and for, you know, the wisdom that you brought to the conversation today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, we, we will have to do this again, Julie. And once we, you know, we have been doing some work down in Jeff city and starting some conversations down there and learning a lot. Um, the, it's all out of my wheelhouse, but it's, interesting. Um, I do get a little worried about just getting sucked. It just feels like such a game. And I just get worried about being sucked into the game because I don't think the game is really working. So, you know, we gotta, we gotta change the game, disrupt the game. Um, and figure Ooh, disrupt. Out. I like that word. disrupt. <laughs> yes. Yes. We have to disrupt it and figure out, um, what that looks like for happy bottoms. Um, so I'm sure as we continue down that path, we might want to have some more interesting conversations with you in the future about that. That would be awesome. Yeah. Anything else you want to share? Oh, or, God. Yeah. I'm opening it. Come on. <laughs> Sounds like we need to have Julie's mom on the podcast. Oh, yeah. Yes. yeah. She would be great. She would be great. All right. Well, thank you, Julie. We appreciate it. I miss her. (laughs) She is a great friend to have to any organization for sure. She is. And her knowledge and understanding of all of this stuff is so deep. I'm so grateful for her input always. Um, you know, there are definitely been times when I can just call her and be like, I don't, I'm, you know, in over my head. <laughs> what can you, what can you educate me on about this and teach me? And she's just so cool. And yeah, what she, a, go ahead. I was just going to say, she has a really calm, like presence too. Like I can never see her getting flustered or like overwhelmed. She just is like, okay, this is the problem. These right. Ways we can solve it. And that's just a 
really helpful person to know. And yes, she's just cool. She's just yeah. Yeah, like just yeah, has it all. So um, I, I hope you guys enjoyed this conversation with Julie, and I really do hope we have her on again. Um, check out her information in the bio, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye.